They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I'm Aaron, I'm your host. Just one quick announcement before we get into today's interview. The Libertarian Party Mises Caucus Money Bomb, which was supposed to take place back on March 29th, and that was right when all the lockdowns started to happen. We decided to cancel that, but the the Money Bomb, not cancel it, but postpone it. The Money Bomb is still going to happen. We've had a few people talking about that. Uh, Are we still doing it? Are we still giving away the AR-15 and other door prizes We're all pretty strongly focused on the convention right now, but it's safe to say that sometime this summer, not too long after convention, is when we're going to do it. Uh, Whatever day we pick, we'll be doing a long live stream on the uh, LPMC Facebook page with various A-list libertarian guests and asking people to become monthly contributors to Mises Pack. So to get registered for the door prizes ahead of time, Uh, Go to lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb. And to become a monthly contributor, you can go to takehumanaction.com. Today's guest doesn't need much of an introduction at this point. He's been out there a lot since securing the LP's vice presidential nomination last month. And he's doing a really great job communicating our ideas to people. He is a member of the Mises Caucus after all. So I hope you enjoy my talk with Spike Cohen. All right, Spike Cohen, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Hey, thank you for having me, Aaron. I appreciate it. It uh, it's it's a pleasure to get back with you again. I hosted the Vice Presidential Forum of the mm-hmm. Mises Caucus, and uh, that was really my first time I really took a look at you. I was aware of you, but um, you know, I was kind of you know working hard for Jacob and, right. and hadn't really focused on the the VP race and. And we were all impressed by um, by you and what you had to say that night. Thank you. So, so tell us tell us about your decision to you know take us through the the first time you had an inkling. Hey, I might want to seek this nomination, and take us through that process. And are you surprised that you won? And yeah. <laughs> um, I will say that. So um, there's a few different things there. I'll start with what got me into this process. Uh, first of all, I um, just to give you a little bit of background about me, and I, I mentioned this in the uh, in the, the Mises forum. Um, but uh, I had a website design company that I started as a teenager uh, back in 1999, and then three years ago, uh, I decided uh, I had some personal stuff that happened in my life, and I decided that I really wanted to focus my life on my real passion, which was spreading the message of liberty. And so I retired from my company and uh, was in a position to be able to really devote full time to essentially a passion project that didn't make any money, which was, you know, spreading the message of liberty. And so I became the uh, the host of My Fellow Americans, the co-host of the Money Waters of Freedom, and the co-owner of Money Waters Media. And in doing that, and in being involved in basically entertaining people outside of libertarian circles to bring them into a libertarian message that they hadn't really heard of before, um, I realized uh, a few things there. One, I realized that our cultural conversation in this country is so far past what we as libertarians, especially more radical libertarians, like people that would be in like the Mises caucus, like I am and you are, uh, or people that are radicals and so forth. Our thoughts are so far outside of what the average person, average American is talking about. And yet they all recognize that they're being completely left behind 
by this system. They just think that the problem is that there's too much extreme on the Republican side and too much extreme on the Democrat side and that we need to come together to some kind of moderate middle and that's how they'll do well. But they recognize young and old, rich and poor, uh, that they're largely being left behind and that this system is not designed for them. And so I was able to use and have been able to use a very entertaining way of reaching people uh, and then bringing them into the libertarian message. And they were very receptive to it. And it made me realize something. The same communications and leadership and sales and marketing skills that I had used in my business were every bit as effective in the world of libertarian messaging or political messaging in general. And the way that you reach people is you meet them where they are, not just in their spaces, but from their precepts. Uh, you know, our good friend Scott Horton likes to say we're better than the left on, on the issues the left cares about. We're better than the right. Uh, on the, the on the issues the right cares about, and for that matter, we're better than uh, the the center on what the center cares about. And we just need to be consistent, but we need to present it instead of trying to start an argument with people and try to win the argument. Instead, we win the conversation by agreeing with their precepts, agreeing with their concerns, and then after we've demonstrated that we care and that we're listening and that we can be trusted, then we're able to present our opportunities, and that doesn't take a long time. Uh, and so, in when I decided to run for the vice presidential nomination, it was with, with the idea that that would be the next logical conclusion of what I had been doing, which was finding, uh, presenting an, an empathetic and engaging and dynamic way of presenting a very strict, radical libertarian message and presenting it as what it, what it is, a common sense solution to the problems that people are facing as a result of bad centrally planned statist ideas that have come from the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, you asked, am I surprised that I got the nomination? Um, my surprise came early on. So I thought I would get in and people would find me fun and entertaining and that they would then say, you know, okay, well, he, he, you know, he did a good job and, and, you know, here's who we're going to go with or, or that it might be close. When I saw that there was this sort of consensus being built around me as being the VP candidate, no matter who they like for president, they liked Jacob, they went with me. If they liked Vermin, they went with me. If they liked Kim Ruff, uh, it was a split between me and John Phillips. If they liked, uh, you know, whoever they liked it. Um, and then once, especially once John was out, I, once John Phillips was out, once Kim was out, it sort of just everyone coalesced behind me. That was surprising. By the time, for example, Larry Sharp came along or, or, or you know, Ken uh, Armstrong decided to jump in the race and things like that. At that point, it was more like, okay, well, this is going to be competitive, but it was no longer surprising the idea that I'd actually get it. That, that surprise came around like January or February, really, really early on after I, you know, a month or so after I'd gotten in the race. Yeah. So how's the campaign been going so far? I know we're limited, but I, I think you've described it as an opportunity, um, you know, limited uh, as far as travel and things like that. But libertarians are right. We're at home on the Internet. And uh, the, the, <laughs> finally, the, the, a right. campaign that meets our strengths of staying at home on the right. Internet. Yeah. Um, so what type of things have has the campaign been doing? What are you focusing on mm -hmm. and what's working? So I will say this, things have been going amazingly so far. Uh, we have gotten tens of thousands of people that have signed up to be volunteers. We have met and exceeded all of our fundraising benchmarks that we were hoping to get by, you know, by, by each time. Uh, the day before yesterday, we, we surpassed all of our previous fundraising goals uh, for, for single day uh, amounts. Uh, so we're doing really, really well on that front. Um, like you said, I do see this as an opportunity. There's definitely a silver lining to the fact that the Democrats and Republicans, we just saw it. Donald Trump tried his best to fill a stadium and it didn't really work because even though they were allowed to, a lot of people still aren't all that thrilled about going out to a big event and being real close to each other. And so because of that, and because of the fact that with just a combination of limitations that are in place and the fact that a lot of people are still a little scary about going out and being real close to a bunch of other people, it lends itself to our ability to, we're all just kind of people sitting in front of a webcam right now. And uh, the difference is when Donald Trump and Joe Biden are in front of their webcams, they're trying to explain how, even though they're the people who created and have governed over and have overseen the creation of the problems that we face, that somehow this time you can finally trust them to fix those problems that they created. And we, when we're in front of our webcams, 
We don't have to play the left-right rope-a-dope. We don't have to be hypocrites and say, oh, well, you know, the Republicans are bad on this, even though we're also bad on that too, or the Democrats are bad on this, even though we're bad on that too. We can very easily and honestly and consistently say, both these people suck. Both these parties are terrible. Their ideas have very little daylight between them. They are working together to continue to screw the American people in their exclusive control of every lever of power in American government for the past 160 plus years. And we have common sense, bold solutions to fix these problems that they have either created or made worse. And, uh, and I think that it's been an incredible opportunity. Um, obviously the big challenges, you know, we, you know, the, the biggest challenges have really been with ballot access because of the need to, to get petitions signed and things like that. That is a tough one. And so we are working directly with the campaign or directly with the, 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 with national and state affiliates to get that ballot access stuff done. And we're, we're confident we will get on all 50 ballots. Um, but we, you know, that, that's probably the biggest single challenge is the ballot. Uh, I believe personally, Aaron, Bill and Gary were able to get, uh, Gary and Bill were able to get 13% and 11% in two opinion polls. Uh, and we have to get 15% to make it to the, the debate stage. I think we can close that gap. And if we can get on that debate stage, I think it's all over. I think we actually, I think we win this thing. I know libertarians don't like about winning, don't like talking about winning the presidential election. I think if Joe Jorgensen gets in front of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and I get in front of, uh, in between Mike Pence and probably Kamala Harris, I think it's all over. I think we win that. I would love to see you on the stage with Kamala Harris. <laughs> You'd have plenty of stuff to go. Oh Man, yeah. She's, she's one of the worst. She's um, terrible. No, no, no relation as far as I know. <laughs> um, let's talk about, um, I, I know one of your, you kind of alluded to it a little bit already mm -hmm. that I think one thing, I know I've been involved with the LP for about 10 years and I think that we're starting to, people are starting to realize that trying to flip Republicans and Democrats isn't really the best strategy most of the time. And, uh, you know, there are a few people who are disaffected and who, who come over. I'm a, right, right. I'm a, like you, I think, uh, I'm a recovering Republican. Yep. Uh, so I came from the right. Um, so to explain why that's not the best bet and, and talk about the untapped, uh, voting blocks and, and schools of thought out there that you think we can connect with. Sure. Absolutely. So like you said, there are certainly some we can tear away from the Republicans and Democrats. And especially if we actually reach a point where we're, you know, coming in second in polls or we're, you know, in the leadership for the, you know, in the running for the top of the polls, a lot of people are going to peel off that right now, even if they think our ideas are better, they are married to the idea of, I don't want to waste my vote. I don't want to throw my vote away because I don't like Trump, but I like Biden less, or I don't like Biden, but I like Trump less. Something like 46% of eligible voters did not vote in 2016. Yeah. If none of the above, if their vote had counted as none of the above, it would have won in a landslide in, I believe, every single state. It would have been an electoral route if people not voting was counted as none of the above or or other or whatever. It would it would have won in a massive landslide. Now, some of those people don't vote because they can't be bothered. And, and that's just the reality of it. But many of them don't vote because this system has completely left them behind and they recognize it. They recognize that it is a complete waste of time to vote Republican or Democrat. Now, many of them might also think it's a waste of time to vote third party. They'd rather just have their Tuesday afternoon back. But if we can show them that we are a viable choice, and if we can make sense to them, I think at least half of those people are potential to to vote third party. And if that happens, we're now in contention just on the strength of that. That with our coupled with our existing base of people is enough for us to now be in the top 3 in, in contention to to win the race, which again then allows a lot of those those nose-holding nose voters to to vote for us because now there's an actual viable option that isn't just a, a vote thrown away or you know someone who doesn't have a chance of winning. And that's before you get into in this specific election cycle, there's also a huge untapped market of younger, somewhat left-leaning voters who are completely disgusted at Joe Biden being their pick, especially now with these protests happening as a result of the police brutality. They are primed to recognize that if they are someone who wants you know, uh, uh, civil liberties and ending the war on drugs and ending police brutality and ending these these structural systems that have been put in place to keep us down using you know bad law enforcement, and, and, and abusive 
tactics and so forth, that there's only one party that's trying to do that. The Democrats will absolutely put a kente cloth on and kneel down and look at the floor and look like idiots, um, but they won't actually do anything. Um, It will be libertarians that do that. And when I say left-leaning, they're not politically progressive. The Democrats pandered to them a couple times, and so that's who they listen to because the Republicans have just taken for granted they're not going to get their vote. The Democrats have taken for granted that they are going to get their vote, so every once in a while they pander to them, but they're ripe for the picking, and they can easily, I've done it in housing, and uh, with Jacob Hornberger, I went uh, knocked side by side with him. We knocked on doors in housing projects. He can tell you, we were flipping people left and right. These are people that we are told are hardcore Democrats. These were poor uh, almost like 99.8% of the people were black and in, and living in, in public housing, we are told that they are Democrat voters. It's a waste of time even talking to them. We flipped dozens of them as a proof of concept. I've gone into college campuses with left-leaning, uh, left-leaning students in liberal arts colleges, NYU films, uh, film, uh, uh, arts, uh, film and art school, uh, Emerson College, which is a left-leaning political college, um, Georgetown University, very left-leaning liberal arts college. Yeah. I go there, talk libertarian talking points and how they're being failed by Democrats. We were flipping them left and right. So they, I say left-leaning, but that's just really the only people talking to them right now. Right. Uh, you're giving them a little more meat than uh, the Democrats uh, exactly. bother to give them. And yeah. um, so what are the issues though, that you're flipping them on? I, I would think that the drug war might be one, uh, you know, speaking to college students and uh, uh, poor people. Um, uh, is that the case? Uh, and in addition to the drug war, what other issues do people's eyes light up when you make the libertarian point about it? So with uh, with both, uh, so I will say when I was in the housing projects, it was the war on drugs and uh, um, police brutality and occupational licensing. And when I say police brutality, yeah. just justice in general. When they heard that we recognized that civil asset forfeiture was tearing their, their neighborhoods apart, they didn't realize anyone even cared about that. So they have friends who the police came, took everything they own, and they're awaiting trial. and. They don't have the money to sue for their stuff back, nor can they until they're found not guilty. And they they said, no one's talking about this. And I said, this is one of our major things is ending civil asset forfeiture. Um, and so ending no knock raids and, and really the whole the whole slate of how, how we would deal with uh, criminal justice stuff. Um, so criminal justice, uh, including the war on drugs and occupational licensing was a huge one. Every single person I talked to, everything from, t- uh, you know, Older teenagers, you know, 17, 18 years old, all the way up to people in their 70s, they all had one or two side hustles, right? So they're all doing stuff illegally, right? But, but when I say illegally, it's like they're cutting hair, they're braiding hair, they're doing makeup. Um, some did massage. There were a lot of handymen, a lot of people that could do like some roofing stuff, people that could, you know, replace windows, people that would, you know, uh, l- landscaping and lawn mowing. None of them had licenses because they can't afford it thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in compliance costs. They could not afford it. And so here they are, they're trying to make a living. And I had, I never once asked people, Hey, you know, we're I I didn't even talk about welfare. I didn't say, Oh, we're going to cut off your welfare or we want to get you out of welfare. I would let them talk. And at least half of them volunteered. Jacob will tell you this as well. Half of them volunteered. I don't want to be on welfare. I want to be out of this. I want to be able to, you know, I have this, this side hustle I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mowing lawns or I'm, uh, you know, I'm fixing cars or I'm selling a little bit of weed on the side or whatever. And I'd like to get ahead and I can't get ahead. Every once in a while, the police come through. And if you're not, you know, if you don't have your licensing, they seize all your stuff and then you get a fine. And, and, you know, now you can't get a business license if you, even if you could afford it and it's destroying them. So those were the big things, occupational licensing, uh, criminal justice, including, uh, ending the war on drugs. But the big one was occupational licensing. They want to yep. get ahead. They want out of there. The call the liberal, ar- liberal arts college students. The big thing was student debt. And will they be able to get a good job when they get out? Which is why when Bernie Sanders so- shows up and says, I'm going to give you a minimum wage increase and I'm going to pay for your college. They're all for it. Right. Um, so when I would talk to them about how the state had created this entirely arbitrary system that required them to go to you know spend all this time in school and run up all this debt to begin with just to be able to do their their chosen field of work and that we would simply allow them to apprentice and be able to go and start working immediately we signed up people left and right when they realized this whole thing was a shell game created by 
uh, created by the, you know, by the, the statists to be able to prop up the higher education field and that it's turned into this giant monster that no one has control over. They were eating it up left and right. Yeah. I think it's, uh, uh, every once in a while you see a story in the corporate mainstream media about, um, Hey, these for-profit colleges are bad and, and things like that, but nobody does the next step and thinks, well, why are all these people going to all these colleges? Yep. Yep. Because they want to be able to do X, Y, or Z. Exactly. And which, uh, you know, free market alternatives could do that more efficiently and cheaply. And, um, and yeah. all we have to do is allow them to, that's yeah. the beauty of it. We don't have to create a government program. We just have to not let it be, make it not illegal. And that's literally all we have to do to allow it to thrive. And that's the, that's the beauty of our messaging. It's similar to how uh, with healthcare, you know, the reason that the pharmaceutical prices are so jacked up is because with these patent protections, uh, companies can go in and just jack up the price. They can cut, they can completely slash their research and, and development, not even worry about making new drugs and just jack the prices up endlessly. And so the average voter goes, well, there needs to be laws against this. No, there doesn't. Just end the patent protections and they can't do it. Because anyone should be able to make insulin. Everyone should be able yeah. to make epinephrine. These are drugs that have been around for over a century. There's yeah. no reason for it to cost that. It's patent protections. It is protectionism from government for their favorite cronies. And that's it. Cut that out. The market will prevail. Right. If uh, those of you who um, uh, I, some libertarians are still, and, and you know that it's a legitimate position, are still... Uh, uh, of the opinion that patents are important to encourage things. I, I would encourage everybody to read Stefan Kinsella on that. Um, and he really, yes. ch he changed my mind about all that. And uh, he's great. Um, let's talk about, I, I've been fascinated with Donald Trump um, and what he means to American politics. You know, I, I, I was born um, in 1975. So I remember Ronald Reagan and I was a Reagan fan and all that. And through the eighties and nineties and, and, and even up until Trump really American politics was played. The game was a very small game. It was all played in the mainstream media. The allowable opinion of what we could talk about was uh, very narrow, very, very and, narrow. Yeah. And when, and when people would say something you know, they would make a gaffe on the campaign trail, then they'd have to apologize and all that stuff. And so that, that, that stuff almost seems, uh, quaint. Ar archaic and quaint. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, it, and I think Trump has broken that down and showed us the possibility of engaging with voters in more unorthodox ways. Do you think that effect is going to stick around after Trump? There's a genie out of the bottle or are things going to go back to normal once he's out of the picture? I think Trump has demonstrated that if you are bold enough to follow through with it, that the age of soundbite, pr heavily processed, milk toast campaigning, there's no need for it. Right. If you show up defensive, they will go on the offensive. So if you show up with your Marco Rubio uh, uh, you know, Mitt Romney, Nancy Pelosi style of campaigning where you come in and give very carefully selected sound bites and, and make sure not to gaff. And if you do gaff, you get really defensive and make sure to let everyone know you didn't mean to gaff like that. The media will absolutely eat that up and you will be your own undoing. If you come in like a bull in a China shop and you set the agenda and you set the nomenclature and you force them to go along with you, they'll go with that too. Do you know why? Because they have to, because yep. television media is a dying medium and they need the viewership. And if you can bring them the views, even if they hate you, they will love to hate you. They the media loves to hate Donald Trump because they get to you know they get to complain about how terrible he is, which most of those complaints are legitimate, and they get a bunch of ratings for it. And so Donald Trump has kind of broken that code. He's also demonstrated that respectability politics is dead. So you know I, I am someone that typically uh, presents myself in a more traditional way. When I'm at NatCon in a couple, of, you know, when I'm in the convention in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be wearing a suit and a tie and everything else, and that's that's how I typically present. I mean, even even with this, I'm wearing like I, I I'm not someone you're wearing, who you're wearing a shirt today. I'm wearing a shirt. Yeah. I'm wearing an yeah. actual shirt. Yeah. I know. Well, it's funny because people remember at the time I didn't wear the shirt. That's the only time in my entire broadcast history that I've never not worn a shirt. And everyone right. noticed. It's kind of nice. But so the bottom line is that, you know, I'm someone that presents traditionally. But Donald Trump is a bright orange man who talks at a low scream and gold plates everything. 
He's been the butt of pop culture jokes for, I mean, you said you were born in 75. I was born in 82. We've watched it in real time. He's been the butt of everyone's jokes through our entire childhoods. And he showed that here's what people respect. They respect people who they perceive as bold and fearless and, and that they are presenting something completely different from what anyone else is. And they are drawn to that. Now, the majority of people did vote against Donald Trump, but he created a cult of personality that no one else has right now. No one else could fill a stadium with 7,000 people for a political rally right now Yeah, at all. And, and, and so what he represents, and, and so to answer your question, what he represents is that he has, he has shown that the emperor has no clothes, that you can show up bold and brash and you, you don't have to do it the way he does. You don't have to insult people or anything else. You don't have to present the kind of politics he does. You just come in bold and unapologetic and you say what you mean and you mean what you say and you put media on the defensive and force them to question their precepts on live TV and it works. It yep. turns out it works. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's talk a little bit about economics. Um, that's, an, that's another thing that you um, did very well on um, in the vice presidential forum. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's obviously very important to us in the Mises caucus. How, how do you explain liberta the libertarian approach to economics to people who either a don't know anything about economics or B kind of just know the standard mainstream Keynesian uh, outlook on things. The beauty of things is that as people are watching everything fall apart at the seams, they already recognize intuitively that something is wrong. Even though the signals that they're constantly getting from government on both sides of the aisle and news media is everything is fine. We have this under control. Just do what we say and listen to what we say and everything will turn out okay. And if you don't listen, we'll put you in a cage. They hear that and they've up until now, the, you know, I guess the, the neoliberal neocon world order that we lived under, people went, yeah, I guess it's working. Everyone gets it's not working now. Or the majority of people get that it's not working right now. And the ones that I was talking about, the ones who don't vote and the younger and especially left leaning, but really just younger voters in general who don't have any uh, built up time of having made money back when, you know, wages were, were higher than the, the cost of living. They're completely left behind. They're ready to burn stuff down. There was a recent Newsweek poll, just to put in perspective, and this isn't economics, but it just shows how radical people are right now. Newsweek did a poll uh, after the first round of, of protests and riots in Minneapolis. And they asked, uh, they asked a few different questions, but one of the questions they asked to voters was, do you think it was a, that burning down the Minneapolis police station, police precinct, was an appropriate response uh, to, you know, George Floyd's killing and, and police brutality in general. 54% of Americans said yes. Yeah. yeah, that's big. That wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. That wouldn't have happened five years ago. Yeah. We are in a very interesting time. When murder hornets are the least scary thing right mm -hmm. now, that is the reality we are in. And an increasing number of people are like, yeah, we can burn this whole thing down. Now, the, the, the beauty of that is that we look like moderates because we're like, well, we don't want to burn anything down. But what we want to do is completely revolutionize this system so that it benefits you. And so when I talk to people, I mean, people ask how I brought in so many Yang gangers and Bernie bros and made them into actual doctrinaire libertarians. And it's because they were Yang gangers and Bernie bros because Yang and Bernie were the only ones recognizing that this system had left them behind completely and that massive changes were needed. But what I was able to say is the problem is their ideas, modern monetary theory with UBI and, and you know, free everything through the, you know, the increasing the welfare state is just a doubling down on the very system that has created the reality that we're in right now. Yep. What we need is, and I, I, I typically avoid words like privatization. I, I will say free market, but usually in the, in the, in the, in the context of saying setting people free and setting markets free. Um, because when people hear free market, they hear what Republicans call free market and what Democrats call free market, which is what we have now, which is corporatism, which is not what we're talking about. Right. Uh, and when, when, when we say privatization, they think like country clubs and exclusive things that they can't get into and yeah. things that they'll have no access to. So I tend to use words like community-based and voluntary. I'm saying the exact same thing. So when I'm talking about you know private policing, I talk about community policing with voluntary funding, with people who opt in and opt out. People love these ideas. They love the idea. It just cha means changing the nomenclature just slightly 
And then once you have them, you can say, and now we call that privatization. We call that, you know, the free market. We call that the invisible hand. We call that uh, human action. We call that whatever. But you can start by using the kind of nomenclature in terms that they're comfortable with to present them with something that intuitively makes sense. Letting people do stuff and not forcing them to do what you want. Yeah. Everyone already likes that. Yeah. yeah, people do. And like you say, it, it takes somebody who's bold and willing to not sound like the Republicans and Democrats to, right. to get, to get that um, message through and to mm -hmm. resonate with people. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about a little bit about decentralization. Um, I think you're beginning to see uh, a lot of people, even normal people on Facebook yep. uh, talking about, Hey, maybe this, uh, you know, Alabama and California being in the same uh, <laughs> nation is not going to work very mm -hmm. much. Do you, uh, where do you see that going? Are people, are you hearing that from people? Um, and what can we do to sort of, um, accelerate that appetite for decentralization? So remember, I was just talking about terms I tend to avoid. Decentralization used to be one of those. Okay. It is no longer one of the terms I avoid because when I start talking about central planning and top down, uh, you know, top down plans and top down policies from you know bigwigs and Washingtons and their Washington and their favored cronies who are you know benefiting at everyone's expense, and then I say, and we need to decentralize it and give the power back to you, and that's what I usually do. I, I again, the idea is to often terms that we use have been associated with excluding people, leaving people out, leaving people behind, not helping people, being selfish. And that's not what we're saying, obviously, yeah. but it, it's what those terms have been associated with. Because unfortunately, there have been some really bad takes on libertarianism from some limousine country club libertarians who I just wish would stop. Um, but the, the but And so they're using our terms and things that is is not, it will not libertarianism will not result in Amazon being bigger. It will result right. in there being more Amazons and us having more choices. Yep. And that's how it needs to be said. But so, no, decentralization I talk about a lot. And and I mean, you have some of the most left-leaning people right now cheering on this Chaz or Chop or whatever it's being called now, which is a literal secession movement. Yep. At whatever level of success they're having, that's what it's supposed to be. It's like the secession movement and they're cheering it on. These are people that if you had said things like decentralization, I do tend to avoid the word secession because it's so tied to the civil war and so forth, but saying decentralization, voluntary opt-outs, allowing people, you know, using consent culture terms like opting out, uh, uh, getting consent from people that is landing with people uh, in terms of what can everyone else do when you are messaging with people understand that most people are not systemizing things and they are not well read on von Mises or Rothbard or Hayek or Bastiat or any of these things they're not well read on ideas that we believe in they don't understand the central tenets and all of that so what we do is we associate things with what they care about they care about people having a choice they care about people being able to opt in they care about a system being more fair and not being controlled by a handful of very powerful people these are all things we believe in and if we message it that way i like to say you know put on your 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 bernie hat and pretend that you're you're trying to message libertarianism in a way that'll land with Bernie voters, not by watering down your message, but by simply rephrasing things using their precepts and nomenclature. If we do that, then it works. So you know your audience. If you're talking to a small group, you're talking to one of your friends or family, you're talking to people on Facebook, you know where they're coming from. If they're a constitutionalist, you can use that kind of verbiage. If you're if they're you know more on the left, they can use that. But the bottom line is driving home that this is about taking the power away from politicians who we universally hate and bureaucrats who we universally hate and big business cronies who we universally despise and bringing the power back to you. That's why I say you are the power. Bring the power back to the people. When the when you know Black Panthers and people are out there saying power to the people, that's literally decentralization. And so let's right. lean into that. And it works. It is working. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what. Um, and I know that you talked earlier about there's you know a, a one in a million chance or or something that that this could catch fire and and uh, uh, you could get in the debates and and so on. Um, Re, you know, hardcore realistically, and you can still be optimistic and whatever right. you can answer this, however you want. Okay. But what would you see, uh, on, you know, November 8th or whatever the day after yeah, the election yeah. is, what would you 
hope to have accomplished uh, as the Jorgensen Cohen ticket? I think that it is crucial. And I know there are some in Mises that disagree with this, and I, I totally respect your opinion, at least for the top of the ticket. It is crucial for Joe and I and our campaign team to be operating from the standpoint of we are trying to win this thing. Yeah. We are trying to get into those debates. We are trying to get in front of as many people as possible. And we are trying to change the cultural conversation so that we can actually win this thing in this election cycle with the idea that if we're shooting for the moon, whatever we fall short, you know, if, if, if we don't get it, if, if we don't get on the debate stage or we do and we come in second or we get double digits or we get over 5%, whatever, that we will have done better than most people, even including a lot of people within the party, thought that we would have done. But in my mind, I have to be and Joe has to be focused on victory from this moment until, until election day because A, stranger things have happened and B, the more people we bring in, the more people that we can grow in the party and bring to the message of libertarianism, the more we can affect because politics is absolutely downstream of culture. The more we can change that cultural conversation and inject our ideas into the greater body politic, the more we can do that, the more we are able to help not just our own ticket, but down ballot races that are more easily winnable. And that's why we are so focused more than any other campaign before us, more than any other LP campaign before us. We are so focused on, on promoting down ballot candidates. We're pro promoting at least one a day. And on the ones that have the best shots of, of winning, especially at like U.S. Senate and Congress and governor and, you know, Anthony Welty out there running for Washington State yeah. Insurance Commissioner and that type of stuff. We are going hard in the paint for these people because if we can get those victories, those will be major victories that the vast majority of people did not think were possible. And again, we're running to win. And I will say, I think we're a lot closer than people think to get on that debate stage. And I think if we get on that debate stage, we have a serious chance. I, I say better than even odds of winning. And at the very least, we will be at that point pretty much guaranteed to blow through any previous records we have. Yeah. I've often wondered, though, if if we actually did have a candidate, if Joe and you got you know, 15, 16%, if, if they would just move the goalposts and the campaigns then not say, eh, well, we would want to do that. And so we're just going to have our own debate. I, I think that the goalposts could be used, uh, moved in the future. So for example, I forget what the number was. Ross Perot got more than that. And he did so well in that debate yeah. that he could have won if he actually wanted to. He actually, for those who don't remember, for because yeah. we're a little bit older than some of the, some oh, of the yeah. other people in Mises, uh, we're, we're kind of the old folks in the Mises crowd, yeah. um, which is funny to me. But um, when Ross Perot got on that debate stage, he so creamed his opponents that there were multiple polls in the in the ensuing weeks afterwards that had him leading and he did not want to be president so he came up with this ridiculous flimsy excuse to drop out and then a couple weeks before the election when it looked like bush might actually win again because that's why he was in was to stop bush from winning he came back in to get some more of that vote if he had stayed in that race he could have potentially won it and did not want to um because you know for all they like to say about libertarians and we're not serious and we're not whatever if, if you have three people on a debate stage, the emperor has no clothes. Whoever yeah. does the best in that debate does the best in that debate. And it doesn't yeah. matter what party they came from. So could they, if for 2024, move it up to 25 or whatever? Yes. I think it would take an incredibly brazen move for them to say, oh, did we say 15? Uh, yeah. We meant 20. Right. Uh, I think I think that it would be very, very difficult if we legit win their polls or win their criteria to get on for them to change it midstream. And if they do, what an amazing thing to grandstand on. What an amazing amount of earned media would we would get to say, how scared are the Republicans and Democrats that they won't even allow that we've met the criteria to be on their ridiculous debate cartel. And they're shutting us out to begin with. I don't think they do it. I think it would be such a, a, a black eye on them. I think they'd let us on and let the chips fall where they may with the idea that then in 2024, they'd move the goalposts up. And I think at that point, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Um, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, um, uh, what uh, media opportunities have you and Joe been getting not on venues like this, on, on non-libertarian uh, media, whether mainstream, alternative, um, whatever, what, where, who's, ha has anybody been receptive and wanting to have you guys on? 
So I have some big names that I cannot say because we're still in the in the process of of working those out. Um, but we've we've got some some big stuff going on there, and and I think people are going to be very happy in the next few weeks of, of who we're going to be uh, landing in terms of interviews. Uh, we've been doing a ton of stuff outside of libertarian circles. We've been doing drive time call in radio, both of us. We've been doing uh, our AMAs, which are pulling in tens of thousands of people and then getting shared tens of thousands of times. Uh, we're also doing viral videos, but in terms of uh, media, we're doing everything from progressive. I tend to do more of the progressive stuff, although Joe has done some as well. Uh, but we do. You you know, we've done stuff on progressive circles. We've done stuff in conservative circles. We are working on getting on. Uh, I, I can't even say the networks because we're still in the, in the okay. middle of doing. But we, I, I, coming into and just before and just after the convention, I think that that the the folks watching this are going to be very happy uh, to see what, what the, the the people that we have landed. Another thing we've done is is uh, outreach to some major organizations. So, for example, uh, we have just announced that. Uh, uh, based on some outreach I did, we are doing, we're going to have the gun owners of America are going to be hosting a expanded panel based on an episode of my show that we did. Uh, and it's going to have uh, Antonia Okafor and uh, Antonia Okafor Cover and a bunch of other people. And it's going to be basically the whole panel is going to be about debunking the whole stereotype that gun ownership is a white guy thing. Uh, I will be the only white person, white guy on that stage. And it's going to be a whole, you know, a cornucopia of different people of all different ethnicities, ethnicities and backgrounds to show that gun ownership is a universal thing and that gun control laws actually have a pretty tinged racist past. Um, and so that is a great conduit into the uh, the two A people because of gun owners of America. And uh, and it's also a great conduit into people who, you know, are have never been comfortable with the idea that, you know, all the, the various progressive uh, you know, groups are just pro gun control by default, uh, which does not make sense to people who don't see the police in a positive light and don't like the idea of them being the only ones who are allowed to have guns. Um, so I think that'll be an incredible thing as well. Just a couple weeks away, you mentioned, uh, the national convention, um, July 8th through 12th in Orlando mm -hmm. as, as we approach that and, and, you know, it's been a long road getting here and we hope it will still happen. And, right. um, you know, the COVID <laughs> stuff is, is crazy. Um, what, um, what do you see as working within the libertarian party and what's not working? And I'm not asking for, you know, who, who are the people we need to run off, but what are the problems we need to solve as a party? I think the problem we need to solve is one of culture. And it's something I've been working on uh, in the, we, we have the Jorgensen Cohen group, which has like, I think 50,000 members or 60,000 members or something like that. And we as a culture, and I think this is typically how libertarians are wired um, relative to just the general public. And obviously everyone's a little different, but generally speaking, every person processes things with a combination of intuition, emotion, and intellect. We are really, really high on the emotion and the intellect. And I think we often lose the intuition. And so what happens there is we are having conversations with people and we are systemizing things and we are breaking down and presenting the absolute best argument to a point where we're getting pretty heated about it because we are presenting the best argument and it makes zero logical sense for this person not to completely accept our argument because of how we presented it. And we've done all of our due diligence and here's even our footnotes and everything else. And if they disagree with us, we go, what kind of moron are you that you don't agree with this, right? Or so for example, when we hear someone complain about the cost of healthcare and how it's ruining their life and how they had one emergency room visit and they don't know how they're going to be able to afford things, they're going to end up having to go bankrupt. And then they'll say something like, I think healthcare is a right. And so, you know, healthcare should be free. Instead of hearing what they actually said, which is I'm scared to death about the cost of healthcare and we need to do something, we hear healthcare is a right, we get triggered, and then right. we argue with them about it. Yep. And now they hate us because they said I'm scared and we said you need to know what positive rights or negative rights are before you can talk to me about healthcare. Um, and so the and we do the same thing with each other too. So, you know, there's the whole joke that, you know, there's no such thing as a true libertarian because we're always arguing with each other. I think the culture within the party often is just very argumentative because that's what we're good at. We're yeah. good at arguing. We're good at making arguments and then, and then, and then, you know, pushing them forward. And when you use a debate club way of approaching every interaction, uh, especially every interaction within an organization, it leads to an unnecessarily uh, combative and adversarial tone within that party. Uh, and so what I've tried to focus on is encouraging people to be kind yep. and be generous 
there might be a time where it might be better for someone to think that they won the argument, but also developed a community, a, a line of communication with you that you can explore and, and plant seeds with them in the future. And that includes within this own party. There may be times where you and I could be talking about something and it's a subject that you're, and you seem like a very level-headed guy. So I, I'm, I'm not assuming anything yeah, about, sure. but you know, it might be something that's just very near and dear to your heart and yeah. we may disagree on it. And it's obvious that this is something that really means a lot to you. And rather than trying to, you know, beat you over the head with my argument that I think is better, I think it would be better in that moment for me to say, hey, you know what? This obviously means a lot to you. Why don't you, when you have a chance, you know, give me a little bit more details about what you're talking about? Because A, you might teach me something. And B, if nothing else, we now have an open line of communication. You see that I care and am listening to you. And you may end up coming to my way once, you know, the, the emotions are less, less charged and we're able to look at our facts as they're laid out. But within the party, I think that that would be good. I think we could all afford to be a little bit more gracious with each other and a little bit more generous with each other because we are a small fish in a gigantic pond and we are trying to take, you know, big, big moves, bold, radical moves. And that is going to require um, us working more closely together. I also will say that to the people that present the false binary on both sides of this argument, but there's a false binary that's presented that we either need to be milk toast, and I'm using the term milk toast. Let's say moderate, because that's kind of an insult. That we either need to be moderate with our presentation, that we really don't need to talk about things like abolishing the IRS or the ATF, because that's kind of scary to people that are not ready for it. We need to just say taxes should be lower. Um, we don't want to talk about getting government out of schooling. We should just say that maybe you know no child left behind isn't a good bill or something like that. And then we're presented with another false choice, false narrative, uh, false binary that what we need to do is be brutalists. We need to say end school, end, end uh, public schooling or end government schooling. But then we also need to say that, you know, for example, everyone that uses schooling is a welfare queen. Uh, and we need to shame them out of schooling. Or, you know, when we talk about the military, uh, you know, this choice would say, you know, well, we need to stop having any new wars, but we shouldn't talk about bringing all the troops home. And then this side would say, no, we need to say, bring all the troops home and that all the troops are murderers. Yeah. There is a fault. That's a false, false uh, binary there. Yeah. there that, that, that's a false, the, the false choice. We can say that we need to end the wars and bring the troops home and that it will help heal the problems that our active duty and veterans are facing, it will end the opioid crisis because we won't have so many people coming home with chronic injuries. We won't have people coming home with PTSD and other and other mental health crises. We won't deal with the ridiculous cost overruns in the military industrial complex. We won't have to deal with the, you know, the immeasurable harm being done overseas, which is leading them to join terrorist groups with a sworn, uh, you know, purpose of killing us even though we didn't want this. Yep. That is how you message that. So you give the entire message, but you do it in a way where people understand how it benefits them. And it also in an empathetic and kind and engaging way that this is about healing divides. When I talk about police brutality, I talk about healing the divide between the police and the public and allowing for good policing to be incentivized instead of punished. So that if we are to have police, uh, whether they're community police, private police, you know, state police, whatever, the only reason they are out there is to protect people's lives and rights and property, which means that every person, when they see a police officer, unless they are out harming people's lives, rights, and properties, they're happy to see them. Or at the very least, they're not angry or scared or resentful. So we stop the police from being enforcers of you know, taillights and revenue collector nonsense. They are out to protect people, maybe even just make them on call where they only show up to emergencies or they're only patrolling looking for active incidents of people harming each other that kind of stuff. You can message it in a way that demonstrates a bold and radical departure from what the Democrats and the, the Republicans have, have foisted upon us, but also in a way that connects with them on an intuitive level that you're not here to destroy everything and make everything scary and disrupt everything. You're here to heal the divides that have been created by harmful people. And that's, that's how we do it. Um, I, I really appreciate your time. And I know that you've got another interview yeah, here yeah, in four bit. or five minutes. So, mm -hmm. um, I, there's a lot of unanswered questions, but maybe we'll get to them another day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you're, you're out there everywhere. And, <laughs> uh, so tell people what the Jorgensen Cohen campaign needs from us and how they can, how they can connect with you guys. Sure. Absolutely. So our website is uh, joej2020.com. That's joj2020.com. Uh, the things that we need from people help share our message. So 
you know, uh, sign up volunteer on, on the volunteer form. If you're able to contribute, we would greatly appreciate any donation or contribution you can make. There's a big donate button there you can make. We greatly appreciate it. My birthday's coming up uh, this, what is it, Sunday? I'm turning 38, so you can okay. donate 38 bucks for my birthday if you want. Okay. Uh, uh, that's something you could do. Uh, join your local and and state LP affiliates. That's where the magical stuff's going to be happening. That's where the grassroots stuff's going to be happening. Join like-minded cockeye. I think that's the plural of caucuses. Yeah. That, we'll, you, we'll go with cockeye. It's either that or caucuses. You can actually okay, well, do either one. I just think I, I like I think cockeye sounds classy. Yeah. So if you're like-minded with Mises and you haven't joined it, go ahead and join it. Go ahead and be involved with it. If you're more of a, a radical or audacious person, or if you're more of a pragmatist, join these caucuses. Join the Waffle House caucus. That's my caucus. Um, you know, join uh like groups of like-minded local libertarians so that you can really start doing things at the ground level. We're gonna need people, you know, knocking on doors and 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 making phone calls and getting petitions signed and, 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 you know, uh, uh, distributing, uh, the, the branded merchandise when it comes out and getting lawn signs and putting them on their front lawn and giving them to their neighbors and, you know, wearing the merch and all, you know, getting involved at the grassroots level. Uh, my social media on Twitter is at real spike Cohen. Uh, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash literally spike Cohen or just spike Cohen. If you search for it in the, the Facebook search bar and Joe is on everything. If you look for Joe right. Jorgensen, you'll find her. Um, but that's really the biggest things you can do. Share our content, get involved at the grassroots. And if you're able to contribute, we would greatly appreciate it. That's, that's great. Um, the Mises caucus is behind you guys hundred percent and, uh, hopefully we'll be able to help out and, uh, means a lot. best of luck on the campaign trail and anything you need let us know okay thank you Aaron. i will definitely do that and have okay. a great day folks thanks for tuning in it's great talking with you thank you bye spike bye bye and there you have it i'd like to thank spike cohen for being very generous with his time as he's on the virtual campaign trail going everywhere these days um, also thanks to everyone with the jorgensen jorgensen cohen campaign for helping make this happen we're going to have joe on sometime next month uh, I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on decentralized revolution. And I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises pack at takehumanaction.com and everyone who shares rates and reviews decentralized revolution. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>